chapter 11. No one knew better than Carlton Case how busted I was in the spring of 1921. From where I was after repairing the leaks in his irrigation line, I had to stand on tiptoe and reach up to touch bottom. Yet it was only a few days after I had finished his line that Mr. Case stopped me in front of the bank where uh, I had stalled off another payment on my note. "'Bob, I know just where there's a house for you,' he began. "'Solid construction, a pump in the kitchen so Evelyn won't have to go outside for water, an acre of land, a good barn, and only a half a mile from the end of the car line, out on Moss Avenue.' Mr. Case, I couldn't buy a house if it was nothing down and cheaper in rent. Well, you've hit the terms on the head, he said. Nothing down and $30 a month or 3000 in cash when you get it. I figure anybody who'll make good on a cement pipe for me will make good on his own home. So that's how in May we moved to 122 Moss Avenue. For Evelyn, after nearly four years of married life in rented rooms, tents, and cook shacks, it was her first real home, to become more so when our son Donald was born on September 29th. For me, it was the start of R.G. Letourneau, Incorporated. The barn became my machine shop, the acre of land my open-air factory, and the dust in the driveway, my engineering department, where, squatting on my heels, I could draw up my blueprints with my finger. On the other hand, my newly declared partnership with God was bringing me a great peace of mind while doing little for Him. The crusher came that fall when I pinned everything on a winter-long contract in dry Southern California involving several hundred acres of land. I pared my bid down to where, as contractors say, there were hardly beans left for the table, and I lost it. To quote another old saying, I was left so small I couldn't power a treadmill in a flea circus. I must have looked as small as I felt because just now, 38 years later, I happened to mention the incident to my wife. Oh, that awful day, she said. I've never forgotten how down in the dumps you were when you came home and told me you'd lost the job. I've never seen you so low before or since. The next morning, for lack of anything else to do, after pinning all my hopes on the contract, I went out to overhaul the tractor. I don't know why. The rains around Stockton had brought earth moving to a halt. A nearby rancher came up and said, Say, Bob, if you aren't doing anything, I've got some stumps to pull at my farm. I'll bet with this tractor you could do it in half a day. After losing a winter's contract, I wasn't much interested in a half day's work, but he was one of those fellows who wouldn't take no for an answer. You're making a mistake, he said. I think you could make a few dollars and help me improve my ranch at the same time. At least you could set a price. He had a point, so I quoted the same hourly rate I would have gotten had I won my contract. Okay, let's do it, he said. It wasn't much of a job, but before I was through, another rancher came along. Seeing how fast I was pulling stumps and hearing about my rate per hour, he decided he could afford to have some stumps pulled too. To make a winter's work short, 
the ranchers kept coming along one after another. It reminds me of the story in the Bible about the widow who had only a handful of meal in the barrel, but because she did what the prophet Elijah told her to do, there was always more meal in the barrel in spite of a famine in the land. There was a famine of another kind in the earth-moving business. The winter rains around Stockton that had made stump pulling easy and the softened soil spread to Southern California. The contractor who had beaten me out of that job fought heavy mud for four months and lost money. I came out well ahead, teaching me again to say, Lord, thy will be done. With the coming of spring, a lot of things happened at once. For one thing, somewhat to my surprise, I found I was an employer. My welding and repair business had grown to the point where I needed a full-time welder to operate my service truck in the field. In the shop I'd set up in the barn, my brother-in-law, Ray Peterson, was getting in so much work from garages and shops all over Stockton that he had to have an assistant. And even young Howard was working for him after school, and uh, I'm afraid on a lot of days when he should have been in school. The next was the return of my welder from a two-weeks job repairing equipment for a road contractor. Right behind him came the contractor looking, I thought, a little sore. Bob, I just paid your man more for his repairs than your whole shebang is worth, he said, and you still own the equipment. Well, you get paid more for repairing a road than your equipment is worth, I said defensively. That's the point. I believe in owning my own stuff. How about fixing me up with a welding outfit just like yours so I can make my own repairs? I hated to lose his work, but I could see that if I didn't build the equipment for him, someone else would. Thus, fittingly enough, the first piece of machinery I ever manufactured for sale was the very kind of welding machine that was to build our company. It was an electric welder incorporating a few new ideas of my own. Later, I was to build bigger electric arc welders, and I still build my own, the latest being a big turnamelter that joins thick steel plates by flowing a stream of molten metal into the seam. I had hardly started work on the welder when a big land-leveling contract at Belota came through. At once, I hurried over to the Guy Brothers to rent the Holt scraper I had returned while pulling stumps. To my dismay, they had already leased it to Buck Maestretti, one of my competitors. Worse, Buck had gone off with my electrical system still attached to the scraper. Well, I'll have to find Buck and get my motors back, I told Ira. I got a better idea, Ira said. You aren't going to be able to get a scraper this year. There are so many ranchers wanting irrigation that Holt, Schmeiser, and everybody else are a year behind on orders. Tell you what. Instead of taking your motors off the scraper, why don't you hook up your generator to my tractor and give Buck the whole system? I'll meet your price for the job. I wasn't happy with that idea at all. Not until I'd checked all over and found there was not a scraper to be had in California did I make the best of a bad situation. I built the generator system for Iris Tractor. Such was my first sale of a piece of earth-moving apparatus. I still find that an odd start for our company, building a piece of machinery to set my rival up in business. There I was, back in his dust, watching him drive off with 
my pride and joy. A big earth-moving contract in my pocket and nothing to complete it with. I've been told that an ambitious young fellow today cannot start a business such as mine. I can agree with that. I will also add that an ambitious young fellow couldn't start a business such as mine in 1922. For example, a few years ago, I got an idea for an offshore oil drilling rig. There's so much oil under the ocean that I thought I'd start a business of making seagoing platforms for the oil companies who would be drilling there. But first comes the development cost before the business can start. In our engineering department, we took all we had learned about making heavy-duty equipment and all we had learned about electric motors, gears of all kinds, and special alloys to resist saltwater corrosion. We worked months checking and double-checking our figures on stresses and strains, on hurricane winds and tidal waves, finding surprisingly little information on the latter two. Reported one engineer dryly, when a hurricane threatens an offshore drilling rig, competent observers have shown more interest in getting ashore than in remaining to measure the disintegrating force. In the end, after building scale models and loading them to the breaking point, we were not much better off than the little boy who told his father, I guess I won't go to school today. Guess again, son, replied the father. You're way off on that first one. Maybe we were way off, but maybe we weren't. We sounded out some oil companies drilling offshore and got this answer. Go ahead and build it. If it works, come see us again. Now it was up to me to decide whether to back our project with the real thing at a cost of $3 million or drop it with a loss of a quarter of a million in paperwork and models. I happened to have the three million, but I wouldn't have it long if I was wrong. We made a deal that I believe is unique for untested equipment running into so many million dollars. The Zapata Offshore Company of Houston, Texas, gave us the order for the platform, later christened in New Orleans as Scorpion. They would test it for us under actual operating conditions. If it worked as guaranteed, we were all in business. If it didn't stand up to my guarantee, and that's where I had to be pretty sure of myself, well, I'd be the small boy going back to school on a wrong guess. It worked. We saw our electric motors lift a 9 million pound platform high above the water on its three legs at the rate of a foot a minute. We saw it as the only offshore drilling rig in the Gulf Coast to take the full brunt of 1957's Hurricane Audrey and escape undamaged. Since then, we've built a dozen more and seen them towed to as far away as Arabia and Italy, and you can say we've started a business. But quite frankly, under those circumstances, I think a young man would have had more difficulty in finding a backer with three million than I found in backing myself. But and I can't say this too emphatically, the young man of today is far better trained to start a business such as mine than I was. The point they miss in their impatience is that I didn't start a big business. It may sound like an exaggeration, but I was in business for five years before I noticed it had started. It was that small. The way it came about was through sheer force of circumstances. 
I had this Belota contract and no scraper. I had my shop and welding equipment and what my wife called the junkyard of scrap iron and steel plate that seems to accumulate around a repair shop. Looking that over, I said to Ray, we've got a scraper right here if we just weld it together. We squatted down in the dust of the driveway and began to draw up some plans. Ray was a natural-born mechanic and designer. He knew by instinct all that I had figured out from my correspondence courses. As our enthusiasm grew, our voices became louder and louder. Young Edna, who was helping Evelyn with the baby and the housework, thought a terrible fight was in progress and came flying out. What's all they yelling about? I remember her asking. Well, I don't know, answered Ray, but if I holler louder than Bob and he shuts up, I'm right. If he out-hollers me, he's right. For more than 30 years, until Ray's untimely death from a heart attack, we settled many of our technical problems that way. The rules in the book might be telling us we were wrong, but if we found our vocal volume rising, we knew we were on the right track. The machine that grew out of the dust was a sort of mongrel drag scraper, part Fresno, part conventional scraper, part scoop. It had so many belts and pulleys that I had to go through a checklist, like my pilot before takeoff, to know which button to press. When everything was going at once, it sounded like a rock crusher with a few extra groans when a rock lodged in the gears. Two things came out of my first scraper. First, it enabled me to get back into the land leveling business with a one-man earth mover as good as any in operation. My contracts were saved. And second, it was such an ugly brute, I couldn't look at it without seeing a dozen places where it could be improved. I hired a man to run it and went back to the dusty driveway to work out my new ideas. What I wanted this time was a semi-drag scraper. The saying used to be that scrapers, like Napoleon's army, traveled on their stomachs. The full drag, like the Fresno, was skidded along, resting entirely on its belly, or in the improved versions with some support from wheels. The machine I planned would lift its bucket clear of the ground in front, leaving only the rear to be skidded along while the wheels carried more than half of the weight. The load would be contained within the bucket. I built a welded steel frame supported in the rear by a couple of big wheels patterned after the bull wheel of a harvester. Between and in front of the wheels, I swung from the frame a scoop-shaped bucket 12 feet wide by 4 feet deep and 4 feet high. Loaded to capacity, it held 6 cubic yards. My Italian neighbors across the street and the families of two farmers on either side did not come to appreciate my construction methods. I made the bucket out of a quarter-inch steel plate, pounding it into shape with a 12-pound sledgehammer. With every blow, it rang like a gong, and because I worked outside, I was noisier than the proverbial boiler factory. The cutting of the scoop to shape and the welding on of the sides was far more silent, so I worked out a program of pounding by day and welding by night. The machine was nearing completion when, one scorchingly hot July day, Mr. Throop, a former designer and maker of scrapers, came out to see what I was doing. I put down my hammer while he walked around the frame, sadly shaking his head. 
I'm disappointed in you, Robert, he said. I'd heard you were building something new. I built one just like this a year ago, and it won't work. At this belated moment, it occurred to me that he could be right. What kind of power were you using? I asked, sort of weakly. Air power, of course, Throop said. The best there is. I was relieved. I had something new of my own that Throop didn't know about. What I had was so old that it was obsolete, yet so new it hadn't been touched. Which brings up another point. There must be literally thousands of good ideas in the U.S. Patent Office that never got off the ground. Inventions that died and were buried because they were 10 or 50 years ahead of their times. Or maybe they were inventions designed to do one job when they could do 10 other jobs much better if anyone thought to apply them. What I had was the old electric automobile killed by a strange set of circumstances just as it was reaching peak performance. With its quiet battery power, its steering rudder, its high box top and wide glass windows, its base for artificial flowers, and its non-crank push-button starting, it had long been the favored vehicle for elderly women and fading spinsters. So much so that it became known as the old maid's car, and when that reputation spread, it was too much for the old maids. By 1922, with the introduction of reliable self-starters on conventional automobiles, they abandoned their electric cars by the hundreds. You could buy them for a song, even with my voice. I saw in an electric motor that could push a car up the steepest hills in San Francisco exactly what it needed on my scraper. I bought two, welded them to my scraper, fixed them up with gears and pulleys, and practically cooed when they boosted six tons of dirt out of the ground while whining for more. Air power might be the answer for other earth movers, but that old electric car put me on the path to electric power I've been following ever since. I thought I had built a pretty good machine, but I didn't know the half of it. Thanks to its all-welded construction, it was freed at last of the massive cast-iron frames and braces used on other machines. When loaded, its weight was almost all payload. When empty, the tractor pulling it didn't know it was there. It could careen along at the tractor's top speed of four miles an hour with no bolts or rivets to work loose. Shocks that would shatter cast-iron had no effect on my machine's tough steel frame. Rocks that would crimp the regulation scraper blade had no effect on the flame-hardened steel cutting edge of mine. Its performance was even more gratifying. Even when semi-dragging a six-ton load, my aging tractor could move along just twice as fast as when it was dragging a four-yard mass of tumbling earth. I could carry a third again as much per trip, and make twice as many trips. There remained its greatest advantage of all. There was little spillage. When I picked up dirt, I carried most of it directly to the low spot where it would do the most good. Saved were all those countless trips going back to pick up spilled dirt. For example, my first job, by previous estimate, would take a month. I raced through it in 10 working days of 14 hours each. On the next job, estimated at two weeks, I was through in four full days. This is the machine I named the gondola. 
With it, familiar with all of its moving parts, I built the Stockton County horse track in record time, as already mentioned. And, as already mentioned, it was as a free exhibitor at the fair that I came in for the deflating comments of Mr. Harris of the Harris Harvester Works. Mr. Harris was right, of course, but before I could act on his well-meant remarks, I heard some comments that sent me off on another track. Carlton Case, more than a little impressed by my demonstrations, suggested, Better protect yourself with some patents on that machine. It might be worth something. Patents. That was more like it. Patents made me sound like an inventor. At once, I turned my attention to all the good points of the gondola, finding just enough to work on and managed for a time to overlook its flaws. <laughs>